if I could do things differently, I still have an opportunity to do this, I think, is to really get that megaphone, bolder alliance with other social movements, and continue to fight the real enemy. And the real enemy is poverty or the causes of that poverty in Africa. And I'm frustrated by the fact that we're just not doing enough to, to mobilize against the economic injustice in Africa. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Thank you for joining us as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all career stages and organizational affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Mr. Shweb Chalklin. Mr. Chalklin is currently working for the African Disability Forum as the regional coordinator for their Inclusion Works program. He previously worked as the UN Special Rapporteur on Disability for the period 2009 to 2014. During his term as UN Special Rapporteur, he established the African Disability Forum and served as its first chairperson. Prior to this, he worked in the office of the president in South Africa in the Policy and Advisory Services Unit as the Chief Director for Governance and Administration. He was also responsible for developing South Africa's first policy on disability rights. He is furthermore the co-editor of the book Disability, Globalization, and Human Rights that was released just this year. Mr. Chocolin, thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. To begin with, could you share a bit about what first drew you to this field of work and how you, you began to work in this sector? Well, I'm a person with a disability myself. I'm a wheelchair user. And after graduating from the University of Cape Town, I met some disability rights activists who gave me my first job as, a, as an organizer in South Africa. And that's how I got into this work. In that earlier stage, one of the experiences you had was working for the Office of the Status of Disabled Persons in the Presidency of South Africa. Could you speak to us about that role and some of the barriers or challenges you faced in terms of creating and implementing those first or earlier policies on the rights of persons with disabilities in the context of South Africa? Well, the first thing you have to understand about South Africa is that as everybody knows, we, we had an apartheid state. And emerging out of that apartheid state, Nelson Mandela becomes the new president. But in fighting for liberation, the people of South Africa, you know, the oppressed majority, they, they were highly organized. You know, we had a lot of community-based organizations, NGOs, and what we termed the mass democratic movement, those fighting against the apartheid state and broadly aligned with the African National Congress of which Nelson Mandela was the president. So when the African National Congress came to power, there was already a very strong, vibrant social movement of people with disabilities under the banner of an organization called Disabled People South Africa. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that is how I began my work to work in this field is because I met some of these disability rights activists in 1990, 
1990, 1991, around about there. Now, at that time in 1990, the African National Congress was unbanned. Nelson Mandela's release from prison and all the other political prisoners and people are coming back from exile and so on. So it's a very vibrant period of upheaval and change and a different mood in the country. So the African National Congress also then discovers this movement, you know, of people with disabilities with branches all over the country and highly organized because we've been working on this for many years. And uh, the leadership of disabled people in South Africa at the time met with Mandela and told him about introduced disabled people in South Africa. So by the time Mandela and his government came to power, he was already familiar with this movement. And then when he's in government now, his minister in his office, one of the cabinet ministers uh, that falls under the presidency, he's a former trade unionist called Jane Nider. He used to be the, the head of the Congress of South African Trade Union. So Jane Nider becomes the minister. They're all familiar with disabled people in South Africa. And when disabled people in South Africa, the organization then approached the government and says, we need a new policy on disability something that reflects the social model of disability, that puts the focus on what changes need to happen in society rather than the medical model of disability that tries to fix a person, the individual with a disability. So, so that's when the government agrees, okay, let's bring somebody into the government, into the president's office, write this policy and see where it takes us. So that's when I become the person that goes into the president's office. Wow, very interesting. And you mentioned that time period post-apartheid, there was a lot going on, many different issues. What was it like to try to continue the focus? Of course, as you mentioned, Mandela and other colleagues had expressed interest and support for disability rights movements, but how were you able to continue that effort and make sure that that initial political will continued? And what was it like to actually write and implement the the policy? Well, you know, one of the advantages for me was that I was already involved prior to joining the disability rights movement in South Africa. I was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. You know, while, for example, when I was a student at the University of Cape Town, I was in the leadership role of the chairperson of the Black Student Society, for instance. So various roles in, in, in the anti-apartheid movement that already made me known to activists, you know, colleagues. And when we went into government, so people were already familiar with me. So it was easy for me to fit in and work with people that I already knew in the government. So in the early years, you know, of, of coming into power, you must remember that we weren't trained civil servants, as we would like to say in the South African context, you know, the one day you were in the bush and in the trenches fighting against the apartheid government, by the way, was a particularly brutal government, you know, that few people talk about these days, the brutality of that system. So on the one hand, we, we, emerged from the trenches fighting this government. And the next day we find ourselves within government being untrained civil servants. It was fun in a way because it was uh, also, you know, I have these amusing anecdotes where 
I mentioned earlier uh, the minister, you know, you mentioned the cabinet minister, Jay Naidu, is the former trade union boss. He's the minister in the office. I'm working for him. I'm sitting in his office and the phone rings and he's answering his phone and somebody says they want to speak to the minister. And he says, yeah, I'm the minister, you know, because there was no staff to answer the phones. And then we didn't have uh, resources, you know, we didn't have a budget. The country was bankrupt and it was just uh, a tough situation. And uh, what came to our rescue at the time was uh, a lot of donors came in. You know, I remember I'm getting a computer, a desktop computer donated by some embassy, you know, a phone, cell phones came in and we got these cell phones and stuff like that. It was just a crazy time. But then over time, you know, we became familiar with our roles. So, and then when it comes to, to actually writing a policy, we had to, you know, do some research. On what does a policy paper actually look like? What is it that we're trying to say? And, uh, and I worked with excellent people. And we worked in a team, you know, and the people who were with me were good researchers, you know, they could come up with examples of policy papers. And at the same time, the United Nations at the time had released a document called the UN Standard Rules on the Equalization of Opportunities for People with Disabilities, quite a long name. And we just shortened it to call it the Standard Rules. And this was focused more on the social model, so we could use that. UN document as a basis for our policy. So we were also the first government globally that used this social model to draft a policy that calls for changes in society, called for changes to legislation regarding education, transportation, labor. So all of this helped us to, to have quite a progressive policy at the time before the advent of the UN a convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So I remained as a civil servant in the president's office for many years after that. And one of the advantages was that uh, the African Union, the regional continental structure of African governance based in, uh, in Addis Ababa, and they have a rotational chair, so different heads of state in, in Africa take up the chairperson position of the structure. And when the South African president at the time, after Mandela, Thabo Mbeki, I worked for him then. When he became the chair, I proposed to him that we have this African decade persons with disabilities. And, and that's how that structure came about as well. Very interesting. And you mentioned that's at the regional level. So in terms of Kind of expanding your work just from South Africa to more regional role, what were some of your observations or experiences about both the benefits of that type of cooperation, but also the challenges inherent in that process in terms of building the regional cooperation and political will on these issues? Well, at the time, there wasn't any political will. You know, it's changed somewhat because... You know, there was no commitment to improving the conditions of people with disabilities in Africa. There was no political commitment. Besides South Africa, maybe one or two other countries, Kenya, but there's 54 countries in Africa. And uh, it was great disappointment. It was probably the most difficult experience I had, you know, when I, when I started the secretariat for this African Decade of Persons with Disabilities. 
I became also the first director, you know, the executive director of the structure. So I had to establish an office and get the funding for it and then design the programs and activities and so on. And then uh, the, the African Union, one of the things they did was that they, with the help of some people in, in South Africa, they developed a document called the Continental Plan of Action. And this Continental Plan of Action is basically what are the things that they would try to achieve in this decade for persons with disabilities. So all I can say is they, they didn't achieve much because they, they just don't have the, the wall. And the structure itself, the African Union was undergoing some changes within itself, you know, the structure of it, the management and the governance of the AU, it all changed. And up till today, you know, it doesn't have any resources to really focus on people with disabilities. And what I struggle with about that part of my work in Africa at the time, and even now, is that people with disabilities are the poorest of the poor. So essentially, our primary challenge, you know, our primary challenge is poverty. Poverty is the fundamental issue we're dealing with in Africa. And Poverty for people with disabilities means extreme poverty. To have a, a, a lukewarm response from governments, just an extremely disappointing experience. Mm -hmm. That disappointment, that, that lack of resources and also political will and commitment, is that something that you... You continue to observe over the years. Later on, you were appointed as a special rapporteur on disability. Is this something that you, you found is, continues to be widespread, even beyond not just the African region, but internationally as well, up to this day? No, no. That has changed fundamentally. You see, after the adoption of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, things changed because governments ratified this convention. And what the ratification means is that you now report to a committee in Geneva. There's a committee. So each convention has got a committee that, if you look at the convention on the rights of the child, so there would be a committee that looks at children's rights and that convention. And countries who ratify this convention on the rights of the child would then come to Geneva and they would sit down, present the report on the progress they've made in terms of children's rights in their country. And the same goes for this committee on the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So that makes a fundamental difference. And this is why conventions are so important, because it also compels government to implement laws or to design laws or change the existing laws so that it's in line with the convention. So that ratification brings about this change in attitude and it brings greater awareness amongst governments because they now have to report. And this changed things globally. It changed in Africa as well. So, so that makes it much easier now to work with governments. So when I was a special rapporteur on disability for the United Nations in that six years, you know, I could go to a government and have a basis to talk so I could meet with government officials and say, well, I'm from the UN and uh, you've ratified the convention. Tell me how that's going for your government. What advice do you need? And so on. And uh, I could look around. I could visit hospitals or 
psychiatric institutions or whatever, and look at how people with disabilities are being treated, whether their rights are being upheld or not. And then I write my own report separate from the committee in Geneva, which I then present to the UN. So that made things much easier. Mm -hmm. So as you say, the ratification of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, it kind of forces governments to pay more attention and take action. In your conversations with these high-level government leaders, did you feel you were able to be, be quite honest and critical about the challenges or the, you know, the, the gap between ratifying and implementing that you saw? Or was there, you know, of course, always there is a uh, context of having to be very diplomatic and uh, measured in the way that the conversations go. So what were your experiences with kind of balancing those two different aspects? You know, uh, you're touching on something that's really, I don't know what the word is, but I had great difficulty sometimes being diplomatic in my engagement with governments. I remember in Indonesia, I observed the treatment of people with psychosocial disabilities in a kind of an institution for people with psychiatric illnesses. And I was so horrified by what I saw in a public meeting between government officials and NGOs, organizations working in the area of disability. I, um, you know, just lashed out at the government of Indonesia and said, what you are doing is unacceptable. And later from Indonesia, I went to the UN regional office for the Asia-Pacific region, which is in Bangkok, in Thailand. And I was speaking to a senior official in the UN who then trying to explain to me, you know, what, what Asian culture is about, because I, I, they've heard about this, and, you know, I, I gave them my version of what happened. And, and what they said to me is that those government officials in that meeting apologized, and in that cultural context, you know, the apology means now, let's move on. But for me, where I come from, an apology is not what I'm asking for. What I'm asking for is for you to acknowledge what you are doing is not correct, and that you take measures to respect and uphold the rights of people with disabilities who are the most vulnerable in your society. That's not what I got. I got an apology. You know, you mentioned having witnessed these terrible conditions in, in terms of institutions. And earlier you touched on how traditionally the medical model was used, but then the social model has grown in precedence. And of course, there's also a difference between disability rights in terms of a human rights framework or argument and disability justice, and also looking at the way disability intersects with other systems and dynamics in terms of gender discrimination or racism, class discrimination. As you said, extreme poverty is one of the, the biggest challenges or impacts of um, living with a disability in many countries. What have been your experiences in terms of trying to also address or talk to leaders about the ways in which disability intersects with so many other forms of discrimination. The fact that we have this social model and the human rights-based approach to disability now does not mean that the medical model is not being practiced currently. In many, many places and in many organizations for that matter, people do not understand the social model or the human rights-based approach. You know, it's, an, it's a constant battle that we still need to win as a disability rights movement. So I just wanted to make that point quite clear. Now, coming to intersectionality of 
gender, class, and disability. It's just very hard amongst ourselves, you know, within the disability rights movement, I, I like to criticize us. You know, I'm part of this movement and I'm guilty of it as well. But we're very incestuous in the way we operate. We talk to ourselves. We don't have a, a megaphone, you know. We're very poor at communicating. And we're only now beginning to emerge as a recognized social movement, as one would say. You have something called the labor movement. And in Africa, you know, it's still very active. And you have the, the gender movement and, and so on. But talking about racism and gender and class and LGBTQ, all of this, it's very hard for governments, for instance, you know, policymakers, who are primarily responsible for the changes we seek in society, to make the link between the two. And this is because of this medical model. They still see a person with a disability as somebody that needs to be fixed. They focus on that individual, the charity approach. So this charity approach, you know, this medical slash charity approach is what dominates people's approach to disability. It still does today. So it's not a battle with one. So if we want to bring in race and class and gender, the intersectionality of these things, it's just very hard to make that argument and get somebody to listen to you because what blocks their understanding is this particular failure to look at the fundamental human rights of each individual. And that's a struggle we're still fighting today. During your time as Special Rapporteur, you were there for quite a many years. In terms of your activities and the resources and support that your office had, uh, what are some of the as you look back, I guess some of the successes that you think were impactful or the activities or the influence that you think that office had over the years? Being a special rapporteur, for me, one of the struggles was that I was placed in New York at the Commission for Social Development, where the mandate of special rapporteur came about or emerged out of that what I referred to earlier as the standard rules, the UN standard rules for the equalization of opportunities for people with disabilities. So that mandate of special rapporteur emerged out of that document. And then afterwards came the convention, which means it's a human rights document, committee based in Geneva, and therefore the special rapporteur should also be based in Geneva. I was still based in New York. The last special rapporteur, the person who followed me, is now based in Geneva, and her mandate ends in December. So the next one will also be based in, in Geneva. And that's an important distinction to make because in New York, there was no research capacity. There was hardly any resources. So a lot of the activities I undertook, you know, I had to initiate it myself, going to Eastern Europe or traveling in Africa, Asia, Latin America. I had to initiate those contacts and also fundraise, you know. Unfortunately, I, I had the government of Finland and the government of Sweden supporting my activities. So, so for that, I'm grateful. And, and that made my role very hard. But if I must look back at one of the key achievements of the time in my role as special rapporteur, 
It's the establishment of the African Disability Forum that emerged while I was special rapporteur on disability. Could you speak to us a bit about what the forum does or how it's evolved over the years? I referred to my role as working with the Secretariat for the African Decade of Persons with Disabilities, right? And what we were doing was to try and bring about systemic change within the African Union and its members, trying to work with governments on disability rights in Africa. As I said, it was a, a major disappointment in my work life. But what I realized also while I was at the UN was that I remember, you know, being special rapporteur and then trying to meet or having met with the, the African caucus, the members of African states at the UN, and they have their own caucus meetings. And I asked to meet with them to talk about my role as UN Special Rapporteur and to encourage them at the time to, to ratify this Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. And it was a very short time I had. I maybe had five to ten minutes to talk to them about my role as special rapporteur. And it was uh, also a very, very disappointing exchange because the lack of commitment, the lack of understanding to disability rights, you know, the lack of knowledge, you know, they were so ignorant. And it's no wonder that they are called the silent majority. You know, there's the joke in the UN system and they call the African caucus the silent majority because they never speak up. So when I came out of that meeting and also observing the lack of representation, the lack of an African voice in the UN when it comes to disability, because part of this UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities is that they have an annual meeting in New York where people exchange ideas on implementation of this convention and so on. It's called the Conference of States Parties to the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So every year they have this Conference of States Parties and there was just highly organized Europeans coming in, NGOs, governments representing the, what they are doing and so on, but nothing about Africa. So out of that, I, I thought that I should start something, you know, and bring civil society organizations in Africa together so that that voice of the people can be heard. And having burnt my fingers trying to work with government before, I thought it's time that we go back to, back to basics and, and try and bring out that voice. So then I proposed this African Disability Forum, and from there, I got support from UNDP and the regional office in Addis Ababa. And with that support, I was able to establish this forum. So today, it's, it's active in 42 countries in Africa. It's a very strong organization. It's got some challenges to, to build its own capacity. And, but it's part of an, of an international organization called the International Disability Alliance that's based in New York and Geneva. So we are, we are part of, of that alliance and represent Africa in that alliance. And that helps us a lot. So I think if I look at back in that time working at the UN, there's not much that a special rapporteur can do. I know it sounds like a wonderful title to have. I think what I got out of that role was the establishment of this forum, this African Disability Forum. 
Mm -hmm. In terms of what you were saying about the lack of meaningful political participation and representation and the need to kind of go back to basics and engage with and support civil society organizations, what have been your experiences and also just your thoughts about the power of civil society organizations and the way maybe historically and even to today that they have really been at the forefront and leading social change so that it's not just in terms of politicians and high-level policymakers that make these meaningful changes happen, but it actually comes through these type of social movements. Social movements by its nature would challenge, you know, government or the status quo to bring about change. The labor movement or gender movement or any movement, social movement. People think of social movements in that way. But in Africa, there are particular challenges because besides South Africa with its history of strong social movement, there are a few countries in Africa that one can say have similar strong, focused social movements that try to change the status quo. So if I look at South Africa, then that's a good example. Uh, Zimbabwe is a good example where people are very active, despite the repression. I see similar social movements in Namibia, somewhat in Zambia and Kenya. But uh, the struggle in, in African countries is that they don't see themselves as being adversarial, confrontational. And a social movement by its nature at times, you know, because you're advocating for change. And that advocacy would mean challenging governments, challenging a lack of policy or a popular policy, or lack of expenditure, lack of understanding, so on. I don't see much of that happening yet. But that's something we're working on. We're working on how to bring about those in some of our programs in the African Disability Forum. We're trying to build that capacity within the organizations of people with disabilities in, in our member state, in the 42 countries that we're active. So we're trying to build that capacity, that understanding of advocacy by focusing on particular areas such as inclusive education, providing education for everybody, particularly people with disabilities. It could be on health, anti-poverty measures, you know, what we call livelihoods, advocating for cash transfers, and those kinds of initiatives. So we're using that to try and build this capacity within this movement. But it's not there yet. Sometimes the relationship between governments and these organizations can be very cozy, you know, and that is not an ideal state of affairs. Mm -hmm. Thinking in terms of the UN SDG agenda and the whole rhetoric around leave no one behind and trying to really reach the most vulnerable communities, what have been your observations or thoughts or reflections on how that has influenced disability rights movements, or maybe it hasn't, but just in terms of situating disability rights work within the whole paradigm of the SDG agenda? Before the SDGs, we had the Millennium Development Goals. There, we had no specific reference to disability. At least the SDGs does have a reference to disability, but more inclusive than the Millennium Development Goals. So what we are doing is that we 
where I'm currently situated in the African Disability Forum, I'm working on a particular program called Inclusion Work. And there we work on looking at models of inclusive employment, looking at the private sector and formal employment for people with disabilities. How people with disabilities largely survive now in Africa is either the most common thing is that they either drain on the resources, meager resources of their families, or they run small businesses in the informal economy, or they're based in an agrarian setup on a small farm or patch of land that they live with their families. But those who are in towns, like in more developed economies, countries that have some industry like Kenya, where we are working in Uganda and Nigeria, we're working on, on this program of getting people into, into formal employment. But attached to this program is also a disability and development program that focuses on SDGs. And that looks at inclusive livelihoods. You know, what does leave no one behind mean? Because essentially we're looking at the question of poverty and disability. And that's where we're working as the African Disability Forum in partnership with the International Disability Alliance and other members of the alliance. So other members I'm referring to the World Blind Union and Inclusion International and so on, quite a few organizations. So that's, that's how we are involved with the SDGs. But again, governments must report on programs on, on the implementation of the, the goals of the SDGs. That also provides us with an opportunity because if governments must report, and they also have to report on what they've done, for example, on inclusive education and other anti-poverty measures. So in that reporting, is it an opportunity to, uh, I guess, hold them to account and be in conversation with them about what more needs to be done? This is the thing. Uh, it's more about in conversation than holding them to account. I mean, those are the two things, you know, key words that you just mentioned. Holding government to account means you really have to be confrontational and say, listen, you did not do this. So therefore, you know, our own report reflects this. Having a conversation with government, it's really not something that's going to deliver any progress. Now, I just mentioned now that we're still trying to build this capacity and for organizations of people with disabilities to understand that you have the right to hold government to account. And in the African context, that is not easy because we do not have advanced democratic institutions. So it's, it's not easy. Let me give you an example, for instance. If a country in Europe ratifies the convention and they violate this convention and you, as a person with a disability and your organization, takes them to court, you know, there'll be a court a case and people will look at it and the court may rule in favor of the person with a disability or not. It's very hard to do that in Africa. It's very few cases of that happening in Africa. Because the legal system and the separation of, of powers is not defined. So that thing about holding government to account and having a free media, having media exposure, it's not something that's prevalent in Africa. You look at the media, it's there to sing the praises of government or, as you said, you know, or have that conversation rather than holding to account. Mm -hmm. 
that's such an important distinction. In terms of your your own writing, speaking of media, you, you recently co-edited a book called Disability, Globalization and Human Rights. Could you speak to us about the idea behind it or the process of editing it and what the, the main themes are? Well, I worked with a very close colleague of mine, a good friend and colleague, Isayo Katsui. And Isayo Katsui was my researcher when I was Special Rapporteur on Disability. You know, she was a volunteer from Finland. Isayo Katsui is Japanese, but she lives in Finland. And uh, she was affiliated with an organization for persons with disabilities in, in Finland. And that's how she came to work with me. During our time working, we both, you know, said that after when this is done, you know, we're going to write down some things and, and publish uh, some of what we've done. And that's how the book came about. So it took us a while because we're both so busy. These things take time. But that's basically the background to the book. The idea came out of our time working together. Wonderful. So there are different contributing authors or who contribute chapters to it. What are some of the, I guess, main arguments or maybe one or two chapters that you are particularly maybe proud of or just are very important to you in terms of the history and also just thinking about these issues? You know, the themes that we've been discussing now about how far government is from what people with disabilities want. This is what we've been talking about now, the human rights-based approach, where government is in terms of the medical approach to disability and the occasional charity and general lack of respect for the rights of people with disability. So that emerges for me quite clearly in the case studies that present in the book, you know, especially Uganda and the examples in, in Kyrgyzstan. So basically that runs through the whole book, the question of accountability as well. And, and that's where, what we're trying to, to say in the book. You know, use examples of case studies we actually have. With COVID-19, we haven't had an opportunity to go on a, a book tour or anything, or do any presentations on the book. Hopefully it will happen. <laughs> well, speaking of the pandemic and the coronavirus pandemic situation globally, many people are speaking about there being a shadow pandemic of mental health challenges. And as I guess one aspect of disability rights issues, what have been your thoughts or what are your observations in terms of how the mental health shadow pandemic is impacting communities or in general, how it's playing out as you see? You know, it's the pandemic and I've been stuck at home myself. But I can just tell you that I live in Cape Town. I have some friends uh, with disabilities as well. And one of my friends lived in a, a institution, a place that looks after people with severe disabilities. He's a, he's a, a quadriplegic. and. Uh, found himself living in, in this place, you know, which is like an institution, which is really a horrible place. And I'm against these kinds of institutions because I believe people with disabilities should be placed in the communities. So whatever money the government spends on paying for these institutions should rather be spent on allowing people with disabilities to live in the community. And the point about this is that with COVID-19, he finds himself stuck in this institution. And nobody's allowed in and nobody's allowed out except the staff who work there. So I've not been able to visit him. 
he's not been able to visit me. We speak on the phone and message each other through our cell phones. But I was just looking at what this experience, because I'm, I'm still mobile, you know, I'm a paraplegic, you know, I can use my, my arms and my hands and I can get around and drive myself. So I get into my car, put my chain and I drive to the shop, get whatever I need and so forth. And for him not to be able to get out, he's, he's just stuck in that place now for months. April, May, June, July, four and a half months he's been stuck in this place. What does I do to him? So there are many people with disabilities who've also not been able to get the kind of support and services that they need. So it's been a, a tough experience for everybody. I don't know what the rest of the world looks like, but this is where, what it looks like for me. Over the years, as you look back or in terms of the different experiences you've had, would you say your motivations have changed in any way? Or how has, you know, that, that initial passion and motivation that you began your career with, how has that kind of morphed or been impacted over time? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> well, the passion is still there. I, I haven't done anything except, except working. For my time in government, even, you know, it was about how to change the conditions of the people. Fundamental enemies is poverty. And that hasn't changed, you know. So in the beginning of this discussion, I mentioned that I was active in the anti-apartheid movement. And in the anti-apartheid movement, we understood at the time that the economic system in South Africa was a system of racial capitalism. You had white capitalists and poor black people, and that's it, you know. But I think what has changed over time is an understanding. But the point I wanted to make, actually, was that we were always socialist inclined in the South African liberation movement. Even today, the government of South Africa is the African National Congress, you know, which is the party of Nelson Mandela. It is the Congress of South African Trade Unions, and it's the South African Communist Party that's in alliance, you know, that forms the governing party. People forget about this conveniently. So what has changed for me is my understanding, you know, of how society works, you know, my own society and the governments and societies that I work with in Africa. You know, what is the system like in Africa? What is the effects of that economic system, the extraction of resources out of poor countries in Africa? Well, not poor. Wealthy countries, resource-rich countries, but undeveloped because of the extraction of the resources and the wholesale theft that continues to this day. So how has my understanding morphed? I think, you know, I'm just much clearer about how those things work and, uh, and continue to try to make a contribution to developing a resistance to that. I think that's very beautifully said and well said. When you, just broadly speaking, think about the process of rethinking the way development is done or disability rights work, disability justice work, are there any final thoughts or points you would like to share in terms of rethinking the way things have been done for decades and doing them differently? I mean, I don't know about doing them, doing them differently. You know, if, you, if you're a social activist, right, you're advocating for human rights and a fairer society and justice, 
social justice and economic justice. The space in which you operate, in, in my experience in Africa, for instance, you know, is, it's a narrow space that you operate in because it's tough to build alliances. And I mentioned previously that we're quite incestuous in the way we operate because we talk to each other because we lack a, a megaphone. We don't have a, a loud enough voice. And uh, if I could do things differently, I still have an opportunity to do this, I think, is to really get that megaphone, build the alliance with other social movements, and continue to fight the real enemy. And the real enemy is poverty or the causes of that poverty in Africa. And I'm frustrated by the fact that we're just not doing enough to, to mobilize against our the economic injustice. I'm frustrated by that. Those final words really resonate a lot with me and I'm sure with many of the listeners. And thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you also to our listeners. We invite you to join the conversation. You can do this by number one, sending us a short voice message, sharing a specific ethical issue you have faced in your work. Visit our website and hit the send us a voice message button for more details. Or number two, you can email us a short letter to your younger self sharing what you wish you had known when you first started working in the sector or tips about some of the things you have learned over the years. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for our newsletter, listening and subscribing to our podcast on your preferred podcast player and following us on social media. On our website, you can find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care. <laughs>